One of the things I've enjoyed doing over the years with my, my kids is I've read every one of them, the uh, full Chronicles of Narnia series, probably when they were eight. I, I said it that I was doing it because of them, but I really think it was, I mean, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. It was always a fun thing. I was looking forward to it throughout it. The, the fifth book in the series is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I think they made this into a movie uh, recently. But what happens is Edmund and Lucy uh, get pulled into Narnia and they drag along with them inadvertently Eustace. Now, Eustace is just a complaining, whining, non-believer, doesn't think Narnia exists. It's just a bunch of fairy tales, uh, grumpy, useless sort of person. Well, they get on a Narnian ship. They visit all these islands and there's lots of adventures and all these things. Well, they land on this one island. And uh, the, the ship is kind of beat up and Eustace knows it's going to require a lot of work to get this thing ready to go. And so he doesn't want to be part of the work. Imagine that. And so Eustace takes off into the woods and he climbs up on a mountain where he takes a nap. Well, he wakes up and he's kind of uh, discombobulated and, and, and uh, panicking a little bit, thinks, thinks that maybe these guys have left him. So he scurries down the mountain, but he scurries down the wrong side and he ends up in a valley. And as he's in this valley, he heads to uh, a, a pool, and lo and behold, there he comes across a dragon. And the dragon is dying, and, and Eustace watches this thing die and checks it out to make sure that it has died. And all of a sudden, it starts to rain. And so Eustace tries to get out of the rain and dives into the dragon's lair. And he's in the dragon's cave, and what might he find in a dragon's cave? For all you're reading as a child, what will you find in a dragon's cave? Treasure, yes, treasure, not a Mrs. Dragon, no, a treasure. And he gets in there and he, you know, there's goblets and anglets and crowns and just all kinds of treasure, gems. And he's thinking this is wonderful because suddenly the treasure kind of takes over Eustace. And this is what the, the text says. Or this is what the text, the Chronicles of Narnia says. Now, C.S. Lewis is almost inspired, right? It says, Eustace had never thought much of treasure, but he saw at once the use it would be in this new world. They don't have any tax here, he said. And you don't have to give treasure to the government. With some of this stuff, I could have quite a decent time. I wonder how much I can carry that bracelet now. Those things in it are probably diamonds. I'll slip that on my own wrist. Too big. But not if I push it right here above my elbow. Then fill my pockets with diamonds. That's easier than gold. I wonder when this infernal rain's going to let up. Eustace got into a less uncomfortable part of the pile where it was mostly coins and settled down to await. But Eustace fell asleep and he slept and slept and slept. What woke him was a pain in his arm. The moon was shining in the mouth of the cave and the bed of treasure seemed to have grown much more comfortable. In fact, he could hardly feel it at all. He was puzzled by the pain in his arm at first. But presently it occurred to him that the bracelet which he had shoved up above his elbow had become strangely tight. His arm must have swollen while he was asleep. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he had moved it an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him and a little on his right, where the moonlight fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. He knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It had moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course, the brute had a mate and it's lying beside me. For several minutes, he did not dare move a muscle. 
he saw two thin columns of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight, just as there had been smoke coming from the other dragon's nose before it died. This was so alarming that he held his breath. The two columns of smoke vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again. But even yet, he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided that he would edge very cautiously to his left and try to creep out of the cave. Perhaps the creature was asleep, and anyway, it was his only chance. But of course, before he edged to the left, he looked to the left, and oh horror, there was a dragon's claw on that side of him too. He must try to crawl out from between the two dragons. He began extending his right arm. The dragon's four-legged claw on his right went through exactly the same motion. Then he thought he would try his left, and the dragon's limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerve broke and he simply made a bolt for it. There was such a clatter and rasping and clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out of the cave that he thought they were following him. He dared to look back, but rushed to the pool. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. And why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent toward the water, he thought for a second that yet another dragon was staring up at him in the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. The dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt about it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Treasure has a way of doing that to us, doesn't it? Now, it's just inanimate stuff, just doing what it's supposed to do, nothing evil or, or good about it per se. But it almost seems like there's a, an aura or a sinister enchantment that can turn some of the best of us into a dragon. Greed has a way of doing that to us. And the wildest thing is you and I living in the greatest shopaholic country in the world are right on top of the dragon's treasure, the dragon's hoard. And if treasure can't have that kind of impact on you, we need to stop and, and, and look at this. Now, we might think, well, that's not me, man. I am not on the dragon's hoard. I don't have those riches. When you figure that, that 50%, over 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day, you are pretty much on top of the heap. You're there. And you, you need to, to stop and, and ask yourself what greed can do because it is so incredibly destructive. You know, it's easy to, to, to notice, isn't it? And the, the guys, uh, the execs on Wall Street, easy to see greed there. Not so easy to see in the mirror. You know, I know if I'm committing certain sins, but greed is one of those ones. My, I can cloak it pretty good. I can disguise it. It's good stewardship, man. It's just proper concern. That's what it is. It's hard to see, but it's very destructive. I think that, that most economists that I've, every economist that, that I've read, I'm not one, has said that underlying the financial mess that the world is in right now, a common denominator with all of it is greed. And when you, when you, when you look at when the wheels started falling off in 2008, you know, I, re, I, re, I remember this. Uh, it's like every other headline, every other day on the headline of CNN was Dow has its worst day in history. I mean, man, wasn't that the same headline that was there yesterday and the day before and the day before that? 
And on, on television, you're seeing that all the world leaders are coming together in different places. Guys who wouldn't normally talk with each other are gathering together on an emergency meeting, dumping millions and millions of dollars into stock markets all over the world. And I, I remember looking out my window and it was sunny and my car's in the driveway and my kids were laughing and my, my fridge was full. And so I called a buddy of mine who's a senior vice president at Smith Barney. And I said, Chip, you know, everybody in the world seems to be panicked about this. But life seems to be going fine for me, so obviously I guess I am clueless. Help me understand what's going on. Why are all these guys so panicky? I mean, are they worried about my 401k? That's probably a good thing to be worried about. I, I am too. He said, no, no, Mark, they don't care about your 401k. They are concerned that the world banking system will collapse. And I said, well, okay, what happens if it collapses? And he was quiet for just a second, and he said one word. He said, Armageddon. I said, hang on, well, Armageddon, that's kind of a big word, uh, uh, Chip. What do, you, what do you mean Armageddon? He said, well, let's say, put it this way. If the world banking system collapses, Mark, if you can get to the bank and get your money out of it, you know what? It's useless. It's worth nothing. The money you have in your house, it's, it's useless. That money you have hidden in the can in the backyard, it's useless. All manufacturers shut their doors. The gas stations shut their doors. The grocery stores shut their doors. You go in your house and you shut your door and you wait for your utilities to go off. That's what we're talking about. Can you imagine the anarchy and the desperation? You know, you, you think, I, I guess I always thought that the way the world would end would be, you know, some crazed dictator gets the bomb and starts a series of dominoes, nuclear dominoes falling all over the world. And of course, that's what Hollywood tells us. That's the way things are going to end. Who would thought? Greed is what takes us out. What an amazing thing. Now, I'm certainly not an economist, but I know when you study this thing, it really is quite intriguing. Uh, several different elements to it. The first was the subprime lending deal. Folks whose credit score is subprime just means that, that they are uh, at risk for a substantial loan. But, but the, the uh, banks assume that real estate is only going to go up. And so we can loan these folks the money because even if they end up defaulting and we take the, the real estate, real estate is just going to go up. And so folk got into a lot of homes that they couldn't afford. Other folks stretched their their mortgages because they were thinking this, you know, between the 90s and 2005, real estate was shooting up astronomically. And so the thought was, you know, if I can get into a $200,000 home and if the bankers will work with me and give me creative financing so that I don't have any real interest to pay for a couple of years and this thing's going up at at least 10% a year, I can hold it for two years, then sell it. And I've made some pretty substantial money at 200000 but how much could I make if I bought a $300,000 home? Or if I really stretched and got into a $400,000 home, oh, I could make some real money. And so they did. Folk were using their homes as ATM machines. You know, they were borrowing off the, the value of their home so they could buy the boat and the cabin and all the other things. And so they were going into to hock based on the value of their home because real estate's only going to go up. But then, of course, real estate didn't. The bubble broke. And now folk were standing there holding a $400,000 note on a home that was only worth $250,000. And now all the creative interest was done. And now they adjusted, adjusted the rates. And they were in payments they couldn't afford. And so you're going to, to other banks trying to get it refinanced. And they're saying, we're not going to give you $400,000 for a home that's only worth two fifty. dollars And people began to uh, default in, in record number. A CNN 
CNN Money this, this week said this. They said that um, tw- today, 27% of homeowners who are paying a mortgage owe more than their home is worth. Almost 30% of folk who are paying a mortgage owe more on their home than it's worth. CNN Money says 5 million Americans are more than two months behind in their mortgage payments. And uh, according to Realty Track, which follows this foreclosure thing, 2010 was a record year, 1 million foreclosures. They're projecting, I mean, 2011 is not done yet, but they're projecting a 20% increase this year in foreclosures. In Nevada, aren't you glad you don't live in Nevada? One in 11 homes end up in foreclosure. Arizona, one in 17. Florida, one in 18. But how does this impact you? It impacts all of us in one way or the other. But how does it impact you? Well, perhaps you've been wanting and thinking about and dreaming of retirement. And this is about the time you're supposed to go in. But the stock market has not helped out. And you're saying, you know what? Not today. If my dreams this way will not be realized anytime soon. Maybe your child was on his way to college. That's what his plan was. That's what your plan was. But now we've got to make a shift in the plans. Maybe there's been a foreclosure in your own life. Maybe your company downsized and, and you got to keep your job. But now you're doing the job of three or four people because that's pretty common today. Or maybe you, you're out trying to find a position in this world. Uh, maybe the rising cost of energy and, and insurance that has pretty much painted your ledger red. And the stress and the anger... And the fighting between you and your spouse and the distance between you and your kids is just growing. And you say, man, what do we do with this? Where is this going to end? Because it doesn't look like there's any light at the end of the tunnel real soon here in this world. Well, Jesus talks about this very issue, believe it or not, in Matthew 6. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6, as we look at a... Maybe a common passage, but an incredibly pertinent passage for where we are in life these days. Matthew 6. We'll be starting in verse 25. And I wish I could tell you the page number of the Bible in the pew in front of you. That's what the table of contents is for there. Verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Now, in this whole passage, 25 through 34, you know, there's only one command. And this command appears several different times. It appears in 25, it appears in 31, it appears in 34. The command is this. Don't worry. It's only command. Now, when we hear don't worry, what do we think? Do, 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 do. Don't you think this? Don't worry. Be happy. And Bobby McFerrin comes, comes through in our mind. And what we think is we think, oh, that is so useless. I mean, it's a fun song and all, but it just makes no sense. And it, it, it is a useless piece of advice to give someone. You ever give anyone this advice? Don't worry. It's like, oh. Thank you so much for that great, profound advice. Why did I think of this? Okay. Uh, you want to hit them. Because, because this is, it doesn't work. And you're thinking in your head, okay, maybe this is good advice for someone who's dealing with inconsequential matters. They're, they're worrying over something stupid, I understand. But, but my life. I mean, I've got real issues. I've got things you're, if ever you're going to worry, this is stuff you're supposed to worry about. 
what does Jesus approach here? What does he, what's this topic of conversation? Well, you're not supposed to worry about what? Your life. What you will eat or drink or your body, what you will wear. He's not talking about fashion. He's not talking about walking into your walk-in closet. Do you wear the navy shoes today? Do you wear the sandals? Do you wear the white shoes? He's not talking about whether you should have a Dr. Pepper or thinking maybe I should have bottled water or pomegranate juice. He's not. He's talking to people who don't own closets and pantries and refrigerators. He cuts through all of the, the, the superficial stuff and goes down to, to that which is necessary for, for survival, that which you need to sustain life. And he says, those things, don't worry. Oh, man. I mean, you know, now, now, some of us might chuckle a bit. Oh, well, you, see, you don't understand. See, I've got the spiritual gift of worrying. That's who I, it's just who I am. And it's just what I'm about. And I've done it all my life. And it's just, you know, different personalities. And it's my personality. And it's what I'm about. Um, there are some, probably some personalities that are more inclined to this. But I hope you're with me on, on this. Uh, that worry is opposite of what Jesus is commanding here. It's not a personality thing that we can hang on to. Yeah, it might be who you are. You know what? You're a sinner, as I am, in need of transformation. And this is an area where you might need to be transformed. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, just because he's concerned about our emotional well-being here. But because he's concerned with our faith. Because when you worry, what it does is it works diminishes your faith. It diminishes your faith. Um, this idea of what he's talking about as far as uh, issues that sustain life. Major things. He's not, he's not saying, don't worry because, you know, you're over-exaggerating. It's not that bad. Sun will come out tomorrow. It's not what he's saying. Because the sun may not come out tomorrow. And maybe they're not over-exaggerating. Maybe it's worse than they think it is. And he says, don't worry. Now, that's that's significant because worry and trust cannot live under the same roof. Worry is a sign that there is no trust. Well, worry is trust is not and vice vice versa. Now, now, just so we we understand our, our terms here, trust what it's not. Trust is not a Hakuna Matata kind of, you know, personality. You know, some folk are like always on a siesta, aren't they? They, you know, responsibility is not a word in their vocabulary. These are folk that we think probably should be more concerned about certain things. Sometimes that's not having that personality, having that mindset. Hey, everything's cool is is not trust. It's not trust. Uh, Trust is not a don't worry, be happy denial. It's not denial. You know, you go in the kitchen and your stove's on fire. You don't say, you know. Fire is so negative. I'm just not going to think about this. I'm going to go in the living room and just watch TV and this will just all go away. Well, it probably all will go away, right? You know, it is not denial. That, and then to say, well, I'm trusting. Well, that's not trust. That's denial. It, it's not an absence of, of concern or wisdom. You know, you see somebody drowning and they're bobbing. You go, hey, buddy. Well, wait, okay. Hey, don't worry. It's going to be all right. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. That, that, that doesn't do the guy any good. You jump in the water, right? And, and save him. If the house is on fire, you don't just say, well, I'm just going to trust that it's going to be fine. You call 911. 
If you need some, some money, you don't just kind of hope that the Brinks truck's going to break down your driveway and the guy's going to you know, knock on the door and, hey, yeah, we got some money here. Can you hang out of this for you, you go out and get a job. You do something. You do something. Uh, and this is important because I know we make light of it sometimes, but it's surprising how many folks think trust in God is passivity. It's not passivity at all. Trust in God is a quiet confidence. That, that, that God exists, that he's real, that he, that he cares for me, that I'm valuable to him, and that he will act accordingly, regardless of the circumstances. God cares for me, I'm valuable to him, and he will act, so acting God accordingly, regardless of the, of the circumstances. In Second uh, Samuel 10, Joab David's uh, general takes the armies out. The Ammonites have been giving them a little bit of grief. It's about time that he shows them, those Ammonites, what they're about. So he enters into a battle with the Ammonites. But the Ammonites, they're a bit tricky. And what they've done is they went and they've hired the entire Aramean army. And they led Joab into a trap. And so Joab gets his whole army in this field and he looks on one side of them and there's the Ammonites. But down the other side, the Arameans start coming out. And he realizes, oh man, uh uh-oh, we're in trouble here. What are we going to do? And you might say, well, we're going to just pray. This is a good time to pray, right? Uh, This is Joab, chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, verse 9. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. And look at this last line. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Joab doesn't say we're in a mess here. I recommend that we pray that, that, that lightning and hail come down and just wipe these guys out. We're just going to wait. Joab comes up with a plan. And all things considered, probably the best plan he could have came up with. Joab inspires his men. Fight with everything you've got. Joab comes up with some contingency plans. But in his mind, he recognizes that the battle's not his. He says, the Lord will do what the Lord will do. What the Lord considers right. He knows. God's going to take care of us. I'm not sure how it's going to look in the end. He's going to take care of us. So let's go. For us, especially uh, financially, to just assume that somehow God's just going to do. And God does do. He does. God gives gifts and God can rest. God does. This is what he does. I know. But most often, God works through, through trust and action, not through passivity. That's how God moves. Now, a couple of things that we need to understand, I think, if we want our, our trust built. Uh, we need to under, trust builder number one is we need to know, remember, who he is. Who he is. Let's start again, verse, verse 25 of, of chapter 6. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not, he gives two illustrations here. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Uh, he, he reminds them on the front end who, who God is. Their heavenly Father. Now, again, the birds don't st- they don't plant, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns. But this is not an advocacy for laziness. Have you ever seen a lazy bird? Birds are not lazy. They are always flying around looking for something to eat, aren't they? They are always working. Can you imagine the couple of birds one morning they wake up on the wire and one looks over at the other and says, "Hey, Polly, you know, I'm just going to hang out here today and I trust God. I'm just going to open my beak and let God just drop it in." He could do that, right? And that would be a hungry bird, most probably. Now, can God do that? Of course God can do that. But, the, but God's primary way of, of meeting our needs, and he usually does it much more than we're worthy of, is our, our labor. We trust and we work together. And God honors that. He gives us gifts on occasion. Things that we don't believe blows our mind. But that's how he normally works. And that's what the idea is with the birds. You know, it's interesting. When you do a search and you look through Scripture, God's relationship with the animal kingdom. It's, very, it's, it's fascinating. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I mean, that's a stupid... Many cattle as well? <laughs> what do you put that in there for? Who needs that? Somehow... The cattle are important to God, right? Somehow they're important to God. On to Luke 12. It says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Uh, The animal kingdom is not the product, right? You with me? Of an atheistic evolutionary process. God created them. Mankind's the only one he created in his image, the only one that he has personal relationship with, but he created them. They're his pets. He cares for them. As you might, your, your pet, you care for your creation? Yes, he cares for his pets. But the whole purpose of the passage here is those are pets. You're his son. You're his daughter. You have a heavenly father who will take care of you. Don't forget, don't ever forget your heavenly father, who he is, what he's about. He goes on in verse 28. He says, uh, why do you worry about clothes? He's going to give another illustration. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Okay, listen, we want to do a, a, a project real quick. Wake people up. This is kind of a good thing. We want you to look at the person next to you. And what your, your, your deal is, is to tell them your favorite season. You get four choices here, right? Uh, winter, some of y'all sleep in summer, winter, summer, spring, and fall. Okay, you got one of those are your choices. Look at the person next to you and tell them what your favorite season is now. Go. All right. Uh, you know what? The cool thing is I didn't hear anyone say winter here. Now, there might be some, but first service, there were a couple of vocal winter people. But how many people, I'm concerned, how many people are fall people? Now, I was, I was driving yesterday, and I don't even know where Teresa and I were exactly. 
but the sky was blue. I mean, Erie is really a beautiful, beautiful place, at least in the fall. Uh, the sky was blue, the, lots of trees here at the hills. It was just, just all lit up. It was just gorgeous. You could see the, the lake, the blue. It was just beautiful. I remember it mentioned to trees. Well, you just look at this. It's so beautiful. And the, the wild thing is, is that beauty is not going to last very long. Again, we're not we're conscious of the fact that it's not just a bunch of chemical reactions due to an atheistic evolutionary process. God has painted the leaves on, on something that it's not done to last, but a few, but just a short time. But they, they get God's attention. God is concerned with his creation. And again, the whole purpose of the text here is to say, if God gives leaves, they're going to be off the tree in a short time. That kind of attention. What's he going to do with you? He's your heavenly father. Don't worry. This, you know, it's akin to going up to your, your, your kid's room at night sometime or whenever. You walk up to his room and he's there and he's, he's pacing back and forth and he's, he's wringing his hands and he's, he's, he's sweating. Oh, that was wild. He's sweating profusely and his hair's all unkempt. And obviously he hasn't slept in a while. And you're saying, well, what's wrong, buddy? And he says, well, I'm just worried that maybe I'm not going to have supper tonight. And you're like, well, hang on. You go downstairs and you look in the pantry and it's full and the fridge is full and the stove's working. You come upstairs and say, well, I just checked. I'm telling you, things are cool. He said, well, we might not have it tonight. I mean, you might not cook it. Well, hang on. Have you ever known a time when I have? I, I'm, I commit to this. I've done it for you your whole life. Of course I will. He says, well, you may not tonight. I mean, what do you do with that? You wonder if God would say to us, listen, I've got you covered. And we're wringing our hands. Oh, God, you might not this time. And he said, just by the fact that we're here. He's saying, but I've covered for you your whole life. I've got it taken care of. Yeah, but you might not right now. What do you do with that? What does God do with that? Uh, trust and worry are two different, two different things. Um, one of the things we... Incredible, it's an incredible verse. Isaiah 26.3. Right? This, if you're going to memorize anything this week, this is a great verse to memorize. If you've memorized it a long time ago, I'd go back and, and camp on this, this baby for a while. He will keep in perfect peace... His mind is steadfast. Why? Because he trusts in you. You know, trust is an interesting word. For trust to really be trust, you have to be in trying times, right? Trust is not trust if things are all honky-dory. Things have to be falling apart to an extent before trust is really trust. And he promises trust and peace if the person is trusting. That's where trust counts. So, uh, first, trust builder. We need to remember who he is. Second, trust builder, though. We need to remember who we are. Because he goes on in the text. Who we are. Verse 31, he says, So don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus is saying is it is what you worry about betrays where your heart is. You worry about what's important to you. You worry about what you're chasing in life. What you worry about is what's important to you. It's what owns you. Now, Jesus is, is, is this, this idea of pagans. It's not a derogatory term. A pagan is just somebody who doesn't know God. And, and Jesus letting us know that when you came into the world, you had a world. And it was, it was a good world. Now, it was not a bad world. It was the world of, of vocation and vacation and doctor's appointments and parties and cars and bills. And, and you, just had, you had a world that you lived in and you took responsibility for and you did the things that you were supposed to do in that world. And it's not a bad world. And that's the world, if you think, the only world that a pagan, someone who doesn't know God, knows. That's the only place they can live, Right? But Jesus is saying, when you came to me, you got into a new world. Scripture says that that we were adopted by God. We have acquired a heavenly father. We are his child. We have a personal relationship with, with the God of the universe as a loving father. And Jesus is saying, now hang on, you say you know me. You say that you've got this world over here, but you're living like you're in this world over here. Now, this world over here is going to be our future home physically, but it's to be our home today in our emotion and our passion and our mental activity. We're not ignoring over here, but we're going to do over here with this in mind. But he says that so often what happens is we live like we're spiritual orphans, like this over here doesn't even exist, like all we've got is over here. He says, when, you, when, you're, when you're worried about these things, and that's like someone who doesn't know me. That's what pagan means. When, when you're living for these things, that's like someone who doesn't know me. Remember who you are. You have got a heavenly father. You've got a new, new existence. Your citizenship is in heaven. And, and what happens when you turn your eyes upon Jesus? The things of this world grow strangely dim. Don't they? When you don't turn your eyes upon Jesus, the opposite can happen. The opposite can happen with it. Uh, let me get a couple of uh, commitments in our, our conclusion because we wrap up our, our series here. A couple of commitments. First commitment is this. To, to uh, re-examine your own personal economics. To look at your own personal economic situation. Um, it's an interesting thing with birds. Birds never confuse necessities with luxuries, do they? They're not bent out of shape because they're not eating filet mignon, pheasant under glass, crepes. So pheasant under glass are eating a cousin, right? They're not, they're, not, they're not concerned about those things. They, they are eating what? Worms and Seeds and berries. And you know what? They seem okay with it. And the, the danger that we can get into, especially with this kind of a conversation, is we can say, 
um, my filet mignon, my, my luxuries, my things in my, my stuffaholism, my, my stuff that I got jammed in my bigger barns. See, God's promising to protect those things. God's not promising to protect our materialism. He's not, not going down that road. Matter of fact, he might. If we know him, he might be taking some of that stuff away and decreasing our net worth here. Is that okay? Well, it's okay if our heart is in the other world. If our heart's over here, it's not okay. So examine, look, uh, where we are monetarily. But also, we want to choose to trust. And I've used the words, I think, properly. Because trust is not a spiritual gift uh, per se. Trust is not a personality. Trust is a choice. It's not a circumstance thing. If I just trust when life is good, that is not trust. Trust is a choice. I'm facing this. This is what's going on. I'm not denying it. But God is real. He loves me. I'm valuable to him. He's going to, like Joab, God is going to do what he's going to do and I trust him. Regardless of the circumstances. Now maybe as we've been going through this series, maybe you're thinking, I've never even noticed this second world. Can't say I've got such a thing. And you're in that first world. And maybe you're still there today with this idea that the acquisition is what's going to bring contentment. Well, let me ask you real quick. Obviously, at this point in your life, you have acquired a lot of things. And still, you're on the treadmill. If the things in the past have not brought any kind of permanent contentment, what's to make you think future acquisitions will do that? And perhaps we, we, we've tried in and of ourselves to get off it. We're addicted to the flyers in the mall and, every, and we've tried, but you know, it's just difficult. Let me read. Eustace got out of that himself, but let me read to you how, how he did. Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, meets the dragon Eustace and takes him to a pool, pool of water. And Eustace is talking and he says, the water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Well, I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought the dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down to the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It's only, it only means I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, 
you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. I like that line, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Maybe you've been trying. And great intentions... And, and maybe great discipline, but it hasn't gotten you there. Jesus, come to you this morning and say, you've got to let me do it. And in, in, a, in a moment of, of surrender to him, not based on works, but based on his finished work on the cross, he'll come into your life. He'll make you new. Scripture says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. He said, if you're going to follow, if you're going to be with me, if you're going to find that contentment, if you're going to know what your purpose in life was for, if you're going to understand me as your Heavenly Father, you must be born again. And that's what he's referring to. An act of surrendering your life to him. I'm going to give you that opportunity this morning. So if you bow with me. In the quiet of where you sit, he's right there with you. And he'd be saying to you the same sort of thing he said to Eustace. You have to let me do it. You've worked awful hard your whole life and you've gotten nowhere. Allow me to do it in a simple act of surrender. Lord Jesus, here I am. Thank you for dying for me. Would you take me? Would you do with me what you need to do? I'm yours. And he will. As we would sit... And concentrate, be still this moment. Let's listen to the words as Steph sings. And let him have his way with us.